Greetings, church family. It's wonderful to be able to be back home again. Uh, Gail and I had the joy and the privilege of being able to spend three weeks at the South African coast and just enjoy the sun, the sea, and the surf, and uh, ate uh, a little bit too much. We were there with some of our children. Uh, so having eaten a bit too much, we're having to deal with some of the consequences of that now. Uh, but it's also just a great joy to be able to be home, uh, relaxed, ready for the new year, and to be able to lead us all in our Bible study today. Ian has very ably led us in the first two uh, episodes of our study of Romans chapter 10. So this is the third one. Uh, and what I just felt to do today is to just recap very briefly on what Ian has shared, what he's taught us, um, and then to just expand and delve a little bit deeper into one of the aspects of what he's already looked at. And so without any further ado, let's just get into reading our passage today. I want to read from verses 1 to verse 15. And uh, uh, I just pray that as we, we do study God's Word today, um, that the Lord would just give us such great understanding that the Holy Spirit would help both me and you as we, we, we embark on this study tonight. So let's read our passage. We're going to start in verse 1, Romans chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and pray to God for them, that's the Israelites, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Well, we've seen uh, Ian has made the following points, and I just want to quickly recap on them before we delve into what we want to get into today. Firstly, we've seen um, that there are only two ways that God has given in Scripture by which people can be saved. One is based on the law and the other is based on faith. One is based on what we do, the other on Jesus and what He has done. One requires perfect obedience to the law, the other faith in Jesus. Secondly, we've seen that out of these two ways of salvation, there's only one that is viable and that's the way of faith. And this is so simply because no one has ever been able to produce the kind of self-righteousness 
that meets the standard required by the law for salvation. No one's ever been able to perfectly keep the law. As Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so that very statement rules out self-righteousness. Our righteousness will never suffice. There's only one way that anyone can be saved, and that's by the righteousness of God. And this means that we must cease trying to establish our own righteousness and trust wholly and solely in Jesus, who gives us His righteousness, which is the perfect righteousness of God. A righteousness that is a gift. That's the righteousness of God. It's a gift that comes from God for all who believe the gospel, whether they are Jew or Gentile. As Paul said right here in this passage that we've just read, in verse 10, he said, It is with the heart that one believes unto righteousness. Thirdly, we've seen that religious zeal does not save. People can be very zealous for God, even the God of the Bible, just as the Israelites were. They can be devoutly religious. They can be ardent churchgoers and yet still not be saved because a person is not saved by zeal. For a person to be saved, there must be both a knowledge of God's righteousness and a submission to that righteousness. These two things, a knowledge of God's righteousness and submission to God's righteousness, are essential for salvation. And this is what I want to take a little closer look at today in this episode. Ian obviously has already shared and taught a bit on this, but I just feel that we need to dive a little bit deeper into this particular aspect. Paul said that the reason most of his kinsmen, that's the Israelites, were not saved, even though they were very religious and very zealous for God, was that they were ignorant of God's righteousness and therefore had not submitted to it. Do you know that even today, and even in this country, there are many deeply religious people that are ignorant of the righteousness of God. And so in spite of their zeal, even maybe their zeal for the God of the Bible, they are not saved. Why? Because they are in the same position that the Israelites that Paul was talking about uh, were, uh, were in. They may go to church regularly. They may even pray and fast. They may keep the Sabbath. They may do things like not eating pork. They may be zealously working to spread religion. They may be trying to live a good life. They may be charitable. They may be good citizens and yet still be ignorant of God's righteousness. Why are they ignorant? Because they have not heard the gospel. They haven't heard the gospel presented in the, the truth, in the way that it should be presented. It's just as simple as that. I want to just cast our minds back to Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where Paul said this, The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes? It is the gospel. And why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Well, Paul tells us right there in verse 17 of Romans chapter 1, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. God's righteousness, which people must know about in order to be saved, it's not revealed in the law. It's revealed only in the gospel. And unless people hear the gospel, they will never know about the righteousness of God. And if they never know about the righteousness of God, they will never have the opportunities to submit to the righteousness of God. 
And so this means that unless people hear the gospel, they will never be saved. Because remember, we said that having a knowledge of God's righteousness and submitting to God's righteousness is essential for salvation. So this is a, a very poignant truth, isn't it? And yet it's the bottom line. In the book of Acts, we find the story about Cornelius, and many of you may be very familiar with this story. It perfectly illustrates this truth. We're told in Acts chapter 2 that Cornelius was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave uh, charitable gifts generously to people that were in need, and he prayed continually to God. So we see a very religious and devout man here. And yet in Acts chapter 11, verses 13 to 14, we're also told that God sent an angel to him. And he sent this angel to Cornelius with a message. What did the angel tell him? The angel told him to send his servants to Joppa and ask the apostle Peter to come and tell Cornelius the message by which he and all his household would be saved. And so we see a situation here. We see a man who was devout, God-fearing, charitable, prayerful, and yet he could not be saved and was not saved until he heard the message that Peter had to tell him. What was that message? It was the gospel. You see, Cornelius, until he heard the gospel, could not be saved. He couldn't be saved by any of his own righteous acts. He couldn't be saved by his religious zeal. He couldn't even be saved by the fact that he feared God. He had no knowledge of God's righteousness, and therefore he could not be saved until he heard the gospel. Doesn't this, this just show us just how vital the preaching of the gospel is in God's plan for the salvation of his elect? And this, is, this truth is borne out right here in this passage that we've read in verses 14 and 15. So in order for people to be saved, they need two things. They need to know God's righteousness, which means they need to hear the gospel. And secondly, they need to submit to God's righteousness. And I want you to spend the rest of this particular uh, study looking at this matter of submission to God's righteousness. Paul brings it up in this passage. What does it mean to submit to God's righteousness? Well, first of all, it means the abandoning our efforts to establish our own righteousness. If we are trying to establish our own righteousness, whether that be by the law or by any other means, we have not submitted ourselves to God's righteousness. Secondly, it is to believe the gospel. So it's to abandon our own efforts to establish our own righteousness. And instead, it is to believe the gospel, which, what does the gospel tell us? Essentially, this is what it tells us. And I just want to use Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. It tells us this, that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So to submit to God's righteousness means that we abandon our efforts to establish our own righteousness and we submit ourselves to the way that God has devised for us to be made righteous before Him and that is through the death of Jesus Christ, Him becoming sin for us. To submit to God's righteousness is to do what God's righteousness tells us to do. And what does it tell us to do? Well, right here in the passage that we've read, Paul tells us. He tells us, first of all, what God's righteousness tells us not to do. Paul tells us that we're not to ask in our hearts who will ascend into heaven. 
God's righteousness tells us not to ask that. God's righteousness tells us not to ask who will descend into the depths of the abyss. You see, God's righteousness doesn't require a perfection in us that will enable us to ascend into heaven to be saved. Nor does it require in us to descend into the depths of hell to pay for our own sins. To think that we need to do either of those two things is to negate the very work that God has already accomplished on our behalf through Jesus Christ. In other words, to think that we have to be able to ascend into heaven on our own merits or that we have to be able to descend into the abyss to pay for our own sins is to bring Jesus down from the place that he has ascended to on our behalf as our high priest, as our intercessor and our advocate, and it is to bring him up from the dead. In other words, it is to deny his death for our sins. And so God's righteousness tells us, first of all, that we are not to do that. Secondly, it tells us that the word is near us in our hearts and in our mouths. What is this word? It's the word of faith, the word of faith, the gospel that Paul preached. And what does this gospel say? That if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's that simple. That's what God's righteousness tells us. And so to submit to God's righteousness is to believe those words, to believe the gospel. Let's look at, at this a little bit more closely. And let's consider what Paul was saying when he made this incredible statement uh, that we've, uh, I've just quoted to you, which comes from verse 9. What did he mean when he spoke about believing in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead? I think we can understand what he meant. He was talking about us having a heartfelt belief that God has indeed raised Jesus from the dead. Something that we believe in the very core of our being. A belief that's so deep-seated in us that it influences every aspect of our lives and results in us being born again into a living hope the hope of the resurrection of the dead and of, the, of eternal life and the removal of the fear of death itself from our lives. That's the, the kind of faith that he's talking about that needs to be in our hearts, this faith that, that, we're, that God raised Jesus from the dead. But what did Paul mean when he spoke about confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord? There's no doubt that he was referring to a public confession here. Uh, but what did this public confession that Jesus is Lord mean to the people at that time, the people that Paul was writing to? To find out, let's just firstly consider the word Lord in the light of the Greek word which it translates in this passage. And what it means in the context in which Paul used it right here in the letter to the Romans. And then secondly, let's consider the phrase Jesus is Lord and see what that signified in the cultural context of this time that Paul was writing. So the word Lord. The word Lord is the English translation of the Greek word kurios, which is spelt K-U-R-I-O-S. Paul used it four times in verses 9 to 13. And on each occasion, he uses it in connection with Jesus. Uh, the message from these verses where he uses this particular word, Koreas, uh, is very clear. It is that Jesus is Lord, that he's Lord of all, and that everyone who calls on his name will be saved. It's an incredible message. 
But when the Roman believers to whom Paul was writing saw this word, Koreas, in these verses, what did it mean to them? Koreas is the Greek word used in the Septuagint uh, to translate the Hebrew word Yahweh. So you may ask, well, what is the Septuagint? The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. In other words, the Old Testament. And it was translated between the 3rd and 1st centuries BC, supposedly by a group of 70 Jews who were fluent in Greek. So it's a translation of the Old Testament Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures uh, in Greek. And it's the Old Testament that Paul would have used when preaching and teaching in the Greek-speaking world. And it's the Old Testament that the Roman Christians to whom Paul was writing this letter would have been using. In fact, in verse 13 of, of this passage that we just read, Paul quoted Joel chapter 2 verse 32 from the Septuagint almost verbatim. In our English Bibles, that verse is translated something like this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in our Bibles, the word Lord is put in capital letters. That tells us that it is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. It is our equivalent to the Greek word Koreas. So only un once we understand this will we understand what Paul was saying about Jesus in Romans chapter 10 verse 9 to 13. In saying that Jesus is Lord of all, that everyone who calls on His name will be saved, Paul was declaring that Jesus is Yahweh. He was declaring His deity. And this is how all the believers in Rome would have understood Paul's words in this passage. They would have understood him to be saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Yahweh, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now let's just consider this phrase, Jesus is Lord, and what its cultural significance would have been to people to whom Paul was writing, the people that Paul was writing to. At that time, the loyalty oath required by Roman citizens to demonstrate their allegiance to the empire in general, and to the emperor, Caesar, in particular, was to publicly confess Caesar Curius. That's Greek for Caesar is Lord. Notice the conflict involved here. On one hand, we have the culture saying Caesar is Lord. And on the other, we have Christians saying Jesus is Lord. To say that Caesar was Lord was to firstly acknowledge Caesar's sovereign rule and power over the empire and also over the people's lives. And secondly, it was a declaration of absolute loyalty and allegiance to Caesar. And it was part of the cult of emperor worship that existed back then. And so it was in this cultural context that Paul wrote what he did in verse 9 where he said, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so in doing so, what was he saying? He wasn't in effect saying this. If you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you publicly confess that He is Yahweh, the only true sovereign, to whom your absolute and highest loyalty and allegiance is given, you will be saved. To publicly confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord was not something that could be done casually or flippantly back then. Whether one was a Jew or a Gentile living in the Roman Empire, there would be consequences for doing that. No Jew 
would ever do that who had not really trusted in Christ. Why? Because to him, to call Jesus Yahweh would be blasphemy. No Gentile would do it who had not ceased worshipping the emperor as Koreas, particularly given the affront that confessing Jesus as Lord would have been to Caesar. To the first century believers, confessing that Jesus as Lord was not a mere recital of words in a prayer. It was a bold, unequivocal commitment to live for him no matter what the consequences might be. And it was done knowing that there would be consequences. The Expositor's Bible says this, and let me just quote what it says. The confession with the mouth here in view is surely nothing less than the believer's open loyalty to Christ. It is no mere recitation of even the sacred Catholic creed, which may be recited as by automaton. It is the witness of the whole man to Christ as his own discovered life and Lord. This is what Paul had in mind when he penned these words to the Romans. He did not have some sort of mechanical formula for salvation in mind. He was giving a description of what saving faith looks like. What does it look like? It looks like a life gripped by who Jesus is and what God has done through him. A life captivated by the wonder of the gospel. Although in the early church this public confession was made at baptism, it was obviously not the only time it was made. It was made in the way that people lived, in the way they thought, in the choices they made, when they witnessed to Christ, and when they were commanded by their persecutors to deny Jesus or face the consequences. It was a confession that Christians constantly made. It was a confession that they clung to and would not deny, and for which many went through great trials and even many were martyred. And it is this public confession that Paul says brings a person into salvation. Verse 10, what did he say? For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Do you know there is no such thing as a private saving faith? Now, with these matters, these points clearly in your minds, what I would like you to do now as life groups is to read uh, three short passages of Scripture and discuss them in the light of all that I've just been saying about the Lordship of Jesus Christ and what it means to confess that Jesus is Lord. The first of these three passages is Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 13. And what I'd like you to do is, is focus in particularly on verses 9 to 11. The second passage is Matthew chapter 10 verses 32 to 33. And they'll come up on your screen right now. And the third one is Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. So just read those three passages um, and then spend some time as a group just praying that the people of this nation might know that Jesus is Lord and that they might bow their knees to him. And also as you discuss these passages, just ask yourselves the question of the place that Jesus Christ has in your life. Is he truly Lord in your life? And have you confessed him as Lord of your life? And maybe consider some aspects of your life that maybe you feel Jesus is not really and truly Lord over. 
and uh, just do whatever you need to do to put Jesus Christ in that place in your life today. God bless.